Good morning, everyone. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. This weekend is Calvary's men's retreat. There's about 130 plus guys who are up in the mountains together, and then there are those of us who are left behind. (laughs) I'm thrilled to be with you today as we continue our study. Last Sunday was a big Sunday at Calvary. We celebrated baptisms together in our services, 10 of them, uh, 10 people who committed to follow Jesus for their life, which was an awesome celebration. And after our service, we had our membership class. And uh, over the last few weeks, we've had membership classes at each of our campuses. And in that time, we have welcomed 47 new members to Calvary. It's outstanding. And last week here in Boulder, you can see their names here on the screen, we welcomed 27 new members to the Boulder campus, which is awesome. This is what we're praying for is happening at Calvary this fall, that there would be new life, that people would come to faith in Jesus like we saw last week in baptism, and that people would join us and be a part of our church and help join us in our mission together. When we have membership class, we help to teach our mission statement, which is on the wall, building Christ-centered communities of people, fully devoted to loving God and loving others. And we repeat it a few times, and then we do a little test with the membership class there, and we have them close their books, and we make them recite the membership or the the mission statement. And we tell them, we expect that you're going to remember this for the rest of your life. That's a part of the commitment of being a member at Calvary. But don't worry, we've painted it on the wall. So every time you come to church, you'll remember what our mission statement is. Lots of organizations have mission statements. We're not the only one. Perhaps your business that you own or that you work for has a mission statement. There are some big businesses that have kind of famous mission statements. Here's one, Google's. Google's mission statement is this, to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. To organize all of the information in the world. That's a big mission. Now, Google accomplishes that by selling you a lot of ads as you, you know, read all of the world's information through Google. Here's another one, Coca-Cola. Old business, they've been around a long time, but their mission statement is to refresh the world and inspire moments of optimism and happiness through dangerous levels of sugar and caffeine. Those are both big mission statements, right? Like they both have a global reach. Google wants to categorize or catalog the entire world's information. And Coca-Cola wants to refresh the entire world. They have a global mission. There aren't many organizations in the world with global missions. That's a big call. But the church, not just Calvary, but the church of Jesus is the original organization with a global mission, right? And there isn't a pithy mission statement per se for the global church, but I think one candidate could actually be the title for our series, Good News for All People. 
That is the mission of the church around the world. That there is good news. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left heaven and came to earth and died for sinners so that their sins might be forgiven. And anyone, anywhere who believes in Jesus will be saved. That is good news for all people. And it's for the entire world. So that could be the global mission of the church. Having a clear and compelling mission statement is one of the ways for an organization to be successful. Mission statements help businesses, churches, nonprofits keep the main thing the main thing so they don't lose focus. And today, as we continue our study together in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see and learn from Jesus about how this mission, good news for all people, is accomplished. So if you have yours with you, open your Bible with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. If you were with us last week as we were studying Luke chapter 9, Pastor Tom told us that Luke chapter 9 is sort of a pivotal chapter in our study of the gospel of Luke. Everything changes in Luke chapter 9. And we saw four important episodes that occurred in Luke chapter 9 that helped set the stage for the rest of the chapters of the gospel of Luke. We saw first that the clear identity of Jesus was understood when Jesus asked his disciples this important question, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of the rest of the followers, said, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah, the promised one. You are God himself. And on the heels of of that confession of Peter, Jesus made a very important prediction where he said the Son of Man will go to Jerusalem and will suffer and will die and be buried, and on the third day, he will be raised. He predicts his death and resurrection. That is a critical moment that happens in the gospel. Jesus is now focused on his mission to get himself to Jerusalem, to accomplish his earthly mission to save his people from their sins. After that prediction, he takes a small group of his followers, Peter, James, and John, up onto the mountain, and he reveals his true identity when he gives them a glimpse of his glory, and they see him for who he is, the eternally existing Son of God. And then chapter 9 closes with an invitation to follow Jesus. And so there's there's a transition point between Luke chapter 9 and chapter 10 on the heels of of the confession of Jesus as the Christ, on the heels of this prediction of Jesus that he will go to Jerusalem to suffer and die and be raised again. There's kind of an interesting way to visually see this transition. If you have your Bible, and if your Bible is one of those where the words of Jesus are in red, it's okay if it's not, but maybe your neighbor has one. But look with me at the first, just kind of thumb through the first nine chapters of Luke. And you might notice in those first nine chapters, the words that you see on the page are more black than red. And now that we're in Luke chapter 10, thumb through the next 10 chapters or so. You see a difference? If your Bible has the red letters of Jesus, you'll notice that most of the words now in the next 10 chapters are red. Jesus begins this 
section of the Gospel of Luke, he begins to teach his disciples. He is preparing them for what is about to occur. This is on the heels of his prediction of his death and resurrection. And he now is going to teach them, to prepare them to take this mission one day on their own to the entire world. And he wants to get them ready. That's what good leaders do, is they prepare their followers for their eventual departure. And that's what Jesus is looking towards. At the end of Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And once he sets his face towards Jerusalem and his eventual death and resurrection, he now is going to spend his time teaching and preparing his disciples for when he will no longer be with them. And they will carry out the mission on their own. So we're going to watch how this mission that Jesus is all about is accomplished. And he's going to teach them to prepare them so that they can take the mission on their own. Let's look at verse 1 of Luke chapter 10. After this, after all that happened in Luke chapter 9, it says, the Lord, that's Jesus, appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. At the beginning of Luke chapter 9, Jesus appointed and sent out his 12 apostles to have a similar training exercise. This time, he appoints 72 others and sent them on ahead of him. So why, why does it expand? And why 72? By the way, some of your translations may say 70, some say 72. There's good reasons behind that that don't matter. They mean the same thing. But 72 has an important symbolism for us. If you keep a finger here in Luke chapter 10 and turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 10, look at all the names that are in Genesis chapter 10. Anybody want to count all of them for me? Yeah, I, I didn't really want to count them either, but I have it on good authority that there are 72 names listed in Genesis chapter 10. And at the end of Genesis chapter 10, it says, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies, in their nations. And then listen to this. And from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So 72 takes on symbolic meaning in the scripture. It's like saying, we're sending these people out to all nations, to all nations of the earth. In Genesis 10, those 72 names spread out across all the earth. And the Jewish followers of the time would have understood when Jesus sends out 72 others, there's this symbolism behind them, behind that. This is good news for all people, for the whole world. And he sends them out on a mission, on a mission to share with them. And we're going to watch how that mission is accomplished. Now look at verse 2, back in Luke chapter 10. And Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I think in the verses we're going to look at together, in this teaching section of Jesus, Jesus is teaching his followers that there are two ways that the mission of the church ultimately will be accomplished. First, by the power of God. Jesus sends them out and appoints them. And we're going to trace the power of God through his teaching. 
And second, it's here in verse 2, through the prayers of his people. So the mission of the church is accomplished by the power of God and the prayers of his people. Let's look at the power of God first in Luke chapter 10, verse 3. Jesus says to them, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. This is his commission to them. Go your way. Go to the places that I've called you to go to. And you are going to go out as lambs in the midst of wolves. That sounds a little dangerous, doesn't it? Yeah, and the mission of proclaiming Christ can often be dangerous for us. There can be repercussions when we share the truth about Jesus, that salvation is found in him. We can experience a little bit of danger in relationships, maybe with our friends or our family, coworkers, neighbors, and the community as we share and proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he is the only way to salvation. That can be a dangerous mission. I want you to notice the contrast between lambs and wolves. Who are we, by the way, if we're followers of Jesus? We're lambs, right? What are wolves like? Wolves are predators. Wolves are aggressive. Wolves might be thought of as violent, right? That's not who we're called to be. We're called to be lambs, which is decidedly different than a wolf. And I think often we can get a little confused about when we are on a mission, what our calling and sort of our attitude and the way we're called to engage with the culture is. There might be wolves out in the world, but we're really not called to sort of take the world by storm. We're not called as followers of Jesus to be the aggressive ones who go out and prey on people and, and pursue them in an aggressive sort of way. Right? We're called to be lambs who are humble and meek. And if you know the teaching of Jesus about the good shepherd, they need someone to lead them and guide them. They're, they can't really do it on their own, right? Because this is what Jesus is saying to his followers. I want you to understand that this mission won't be accomplished by your power, by your strength, by your fortitude. You're not a wolf. You're called to be a lamb. This mission will be accomplished by my power. I'm the one who is behind this mission. I'm calling you out into the world, and I'm calling you to be like a lamb, which is in keeping with who Jesus is. Like as Jesus was being scorned and rejected and spit upon, how did he react? Like a wolf or like a lamb who submitted to the authorities, who didn't fight back, even though he had all the power of God in his, in his grasp. We're called to be lambs in the midst of wolves. And it's helpful to be reminded that Jesus is our good shepherd. Even in this dangerous calling that Jesus is with us, he goes before us, he prepares us, he watches over us, he helps us. We're called to rely on the power of God as we take this mission around the world. In verse 4, he says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. 
I think he wants his followers to understand, I, I need you to be entirely reliant on me and on my power. That's what I've called you to do. So it's not that he's saying you're, you're never going to need things. There, there are other times that he sends out his followers and actually tells them to take things with him, to be ready, to be prepared. But remember, this is a training exercise for his followers who have to get ready for his eventual departure. And he wants them to learn this lesson that we're called as his followers to rely on God's power in the midst of the mission that he calls us to. So carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. I will provide everything that you need. I am your good shepherd, Jesus says. And then here's how the mission is communicated in verses five and six. Whatever house you enter, he says, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Now, peace is a really important theme in the gospel of Luke. And we read this and we might think this is just kind of like a greeting. Like, hey, peace, guys. Good to see you. Hello. Peace, though, means a lot more in the mind of Luke than a simple, casual greeting. Notice how this peace can be received by a person or rejected by a person. It says, if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. It can be received by that person. But if not, it will return to you. So this peace that's in Luke's mind can be transferred or shared from one person to another. I bet if you're not even that familiar with the Gospel of Luke, you will know this verse that talks about peace because we recite it every year at Christmas. After the birth of Jesus, the angels come and they sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace among those with whom God is pleased. Peace in the mind of Luke is peace between God and man. A reconciled relationship that is disordered because of sin. And when Jesus arrives, who has a purpose to reconcile humankind with the glorious God of the universe, the angels announce peace among those with whom he is pleased. Before Jesus is born, John the Baptist is born to prepare the way for Jesus. And John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, when John the Baptist is born, speaks these words about the coming Messiah. It says, and you, child, he's talking about John here, will be called the prophet of the Most High. The Most High is Jesus. For you, John the Baptist, will go before the Lord, that's Jesus, to prepare his ways. You'll go before him to prepare the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That is the purpose of Jesus. This is because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. You see the link here between peace and salvation? As Zechariah prophesies about his son, John the Baptist, you will go before the Lord, before the, son of, before the Most High, to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That is the way of peace. So when Luke says, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. I think this is shorthand in Luke's mind for the communication of the gospel. That Jesus offers forgiveness, salvation, 
for the forgiveness of sins. So when you enter a house, or in our case, you have a relationship with someone and you share the gospel with them, I think that's what Luke means by peace be to this house. This peace can be received or it can be rejected. So it can rest upon a person and be received or it can return and be rejected, just like the gospel. I think we all have experience if we've shared the gospel with people that sometimes people receive it and sometimes people reject it. And verses seven through nine show what happens when the peace of God offered through Jesus is received. Jesus says, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So when people receive the message of peace that is found in Jesus, then what happens? He says to them, heal the sick in that place and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So first, there is a deed that occurs. They heal the sick. They demonstrate the power of God visibly for them to see, and then they once again communicate a word, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And that kingdom has come near to them both personally because they have received that peace, and it has come near to them visibly because they will see a healing occur in their midst, which happens by the power of God. Now the kingdom of God has come near to you. That's what Jesus wants to say to them. It's come near to you personally and visibly. The kingdom is the rule and reign of Christ in the hearts of people. So this is the demonstration that the gospel message, that this message, that this mission that they're on has been received in the hearts of people. Now contrast this with verses 10 through 12, which is what happens when the peace of God offered through Jesus is rejected. Jesus says, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you, which was kind of a first century way of saying, we're done with you. We're finished with you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Notice it doesn't say the kingdom of God has come near to you. It has not been received personally by the folks who have rejected it, but nonetheless, the kingdom of God has come near And now this place rejects it. And Jesus says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Sodom, of course, was the Old Old Testament place that received the judgment of God because of their rejection of him. And he says it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And then verses 13 through 15 give more examples of towns that reject Jesus. And then Jesus summarizes this whole teaching in verse 16 by saying, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. It's a reminder for his followers that as you send this message, as you're out on mission, sharing, peace with people, 
Just remember, if they reject you, they're really rejecting me. They're rejecting Jesus because you're my messengers. You're my ambassadors in the places that I have called you to go. But then he makes this extraordinary link where Jesus says, those who reject me then reject the one who sent me, which is God himself. And so what Jesus is saying to them is ultimately people who reject Jesus reject God himself. This is one of the many times in the gospel that Jesus makes himself co-equal with the Father. And it's one of the reasons he was ultimately killed because of the spectacular claims that he made about himself. But he is saying, if anyone rejects me, they reject the Father. Which reminds us that anytime we reject Jesus, we reject God. It's a stern warning. It's sobering to be reminded that there are essentially two options, Jesus is saying, as the mission of God is proclaimed, to receive Jesus or to reject Jesus. There's really no middle ground in between the two. You either receive him for who he is, what he's done, what he can offer to you, or you reject him. There's no middle ground of, well, Jesus is fine, but I also believe these other things. Jesus calls for a total focus on him. Because as he says, and as the gospel writers say, and as the writers of the rest of the New Testament declare, there is salvation found in no one else besides Jesus. So when this peace is shared, this peace is brought by Jesus because of the work that he accomplished on the cross. Then the 72 returned with joy in verse 17. It says, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So all of his followers come back and they're all excited because they've been able to see what the power of God in their hands can do. It can cast out demons. It can do all these powerful things. People can be healed. And Jesus kind of says to them, slow down. I know that's exciting. But I've seen greater things than you've seen. I've seen Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And I have given you extraordinary power. I've given you great authority over serpents and scorpions. I think this is meant to be symbolic over the demonic forces of the earth. And over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. But then he says, nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the, the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I think this just underscores the importance and the critical nature of this mission, that there is a eternal spiritual part of this mission. They've watched all these physical things that have happened. They've watched demons get cast out, which is important. They've watched people get healed from illness and disease. That's also important. But Jesus is saying, I don't want you to miss the most important thing about this mission. And that is that your names are written in heaven. That is the purpose of why I'm sending you out, is so that other names might be written in heaven, just like yours. 
This just underscores that our spiritual needs, the spiritual needs of people, transcend our physical ones. Like the work of the church to meet physical needs is really important. I think we saw an example of Jesus says, heal the sick and then declare that the kingdom of God has come near to you. I think we are called absolutely as the church to preach the gospel both in word and deed. But we must never lose sight of the ultimate purpose of why the church exists so that new names might be written in heaven. So that new people would come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We can probably all think of stories of churches that once held strongly to this mission and then maybe got distracted by social needs in the world. And now you look at them and they basically are just social service agencies. They aren't preaching the gospel. They don't believe anything about Jesus. They're meeting important physical needs, but they have lost sight of the ultimate mission, which is salvation in the name of Jesus. There are churches today that are losing their way politically, and they are being distracted by big political problems that exist, but they're exerting all their energy towards political needs rather than towards the ultimate mission of the church, which are the spiritual needs of the people. May it never be true of us. And Jesus wants to remind them the most important thing about everything that happens is that you remember that your name is written in heaven and the people who call on my name, their names are written in heaven too. So the mission of the church is accomplished first by the power of God. And then if we go back up to verse two, also the prayers of his people. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is a fairly popular verse. I think many of us have heard it. And I think oftentimes when we read this verse, we categorize ourselves into one of two different options. We are either the prayer or we are the laborer. Like the laborers are the ones that we send out into the mission field. The laborers are the ones that we pay to preach. And we pray. I don't think that's what this verse is saying. Notice that Jesus is talking to the 72 that he sent out. And he said to them, to the ones who are going out on this mission, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, therefore Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I think what Jesus is telling them is, as you go out on this mission, you've been sent by me, you are going to be reliant on my power, but one of your most important jobs is to pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to raise up more laborers. Who are the laborers? The laborers are any person who calls on the name of Jesus. So if you're a follower of Jesus, are you a laborer? Absolutely yes. If you're a follower of Jesus, are you a prayer? Absolutely yes. Are we supposed to pray for people who are serving God across the other side of the world? Absolutely yes. But let's not think that they are altogether different than we are. That we're the ones who are here and our job is to pray. It is to pray. And then to lose sight of our calling to also be laborers and to pray for more laborers to come to the harvest. 
so that more and more people can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Now, he says, I want you to pray earnestly. There's like an urgency to this mission. It's time limited. Time is of the essence. And so I want you to pray earnestly, regularly, urgently for the spiritual needs of the people that you're going to meet. Now, he sends them out, we saw in verse 1, out to the towns where Jesus is about to go. So he's going to prepare, in this case, these folks are preparing those towns for the arrival of Jesus. Obviously, it's a little different for us. But our calling, as we pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, is to prepare people for the second arrival of Jesus. Like, he's coming again. This group was going out to prepare for his first arrival as he would come to these towns and he would minister there. Our calling today on the other side of the cross is to pray for laborers to go out into the harvest to prepare more laborers for the return of Jesus. He says in verse 4, again we saw it earlier, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. This is an urgent mission. Greet no one on the road, he says, which is kind of a funny thing to say. Like, doesn't that seem a little rude? Someone says hi to you and you're walking by him, you just ignore him. You keep going. In the first century, a greeting on the road was more than just, hey, how you doing? Hope you're having a nice walk today. Like, that might turn into a three-day stay at someone's house, someone you've never met before. And that greeting, because of first century Eastern hospitality, was immense, but Jesus says, no, I'm calling you on a very urgent mission. So as you go out and people greet you on the road, ignore them, go to the place that I've called you to go because this, this is urgent. We're praying for a great harvest here at Calvary this year. I think we've shared with you that last year, our attendance was averaging about 400 people at the Boulder campus each Sunday which is about 60% of where we were prior to COVID. That's kind of the case for every church in America. COVID was this great reset where less people go to church by and large. And we're praying that God would raise up more laborers, that the harvest is plentiful in the city of Boulder. And we are praying that we would experience more regularly what we experienced last weekend with 10 baptisms. We've, we've celebrated 28 baptisms this fall at Calvary. That's awesome. And we're praying that God would bring more and more people to faith this year. And I want to encourage each of you to be praying that God would bring new people to our church urgently. Pray that God would raise up more people to go out and share with them. Pray that God would bring more people to be a part of our church. We have some incredible examples of God working powerfully through prayer here at Calvary. It's one of our shaping values. We believe in prayer and faith. We believe that God accomplishes his will when we pray together. One of the most recent examples of this is a few years ago, we were celebrating our 130th anniversary as a church. And as we prepared to do that, we asked the congregation to pray with us for 130 days. Many of you were a part of that. And we specifically asked God for him to declare his will to us about whether or not we should launch a third campus and where that might be. We sensed maybe God was calling us to do that, but we didn't know where and we didn't know what it was going to look like. 
And during those 130 days, God made it abundantly clear that he was calling our church to go to Thornton, which had not really been on our radar, wasn't a place we were considering. And then we were praying that God would provide a place for us to meet there in Thornton. So my job as the executive pastor is to handle a lot of organizational details, right? And make sure the operations are running smoothly. So I'm making sure that we're meeting with schools and we're looking at possible real estate that we could buy or lease that we could use for a church. And meanwhile, some people are praying, literally, that maybe there's a church in Thornton that would just give us their building. Which I think, that's a wonderful prayer. That's bold. I'm going to make sure we have a plan so that when we open this place, there's, there's somewhere that we can meet, right? So then what happens? We go and knock on doors of churches in Thornton, not to ask them if they'd give us our building, their building, but just to say, hey, we're praying about coming to Thornton. Can you tell us about the city? What are the needs here? What different churches are here? How can we come alongside you? Where might be a good place for us to meet? Lo and behold, we find a church who says, you know what? We have 13 remaining members. We've tried our hardest. We just don't see a future for us. We're really praying about giving our building to a church. Could we learn more about what your mission is, about what your calling is as a church? We said, yeah, absolutely. Actually, this week we're having a meeting with our church where we're going to share what we believe is our calling to go to the city of Thornton. You should come. Maybe you could bring your 13 members and hear about it. So they come, they hear about it. What do they say? We would like to give you this building, all of our assets, to become the third campus of Calvary Bible Church. Now, how does that happen? That happens by the power of God and the prayers of his people. And we believe God can do great things still and is, absolutely. And our calling as a people is to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up laborers. So I want to ask you to pray with us this year as we pray that God would do a great work here in Boulder. As we close, I want to share a story with you from one of our global partners. Natalie Swanson and her husband, Andy, have been serving God around the world as a part of our supported missionary team for nearly 20 years. Previously, they were in East Asia. When COVID came, they had to leave, and they came back to the United States and then discerned that God was calling them to the Middle East. They served God there with their three kids, and their fall update had an amazing story I wanted to share with you. And as I read it, I just want you to think about what Jesus was teaching his disciples when he sent out the 72, how the mission of God is accomplished through the power of God and the prayers of his people. Natalie said, after I graduated from college, I went to a Middle Eastern country with my church to spend two years sharing the gospel with Muslim college students. I took a position as an English teacher at a university in the capital city and was warned repeatedly that it was illegal to talk about my faith. We began to pray that the Lord would put us in the path of those people who were seeking him. But we had to be very careful who we would share with. And the school staff was totally off limits because we, were, we knew that we were being watched by the administration. There was one young teacher in my department named Nilafar who would ask a lot of questions about my beliefs and about Jesus. We weren't supposed to share outright with any other teachers, but this girl was persistent. I would answer her questions carefully, but she seemed 
very hostile to the gospel. I wondered if she had been hired by the school to watch me. She would often wander into my classroom and listen and would come to our English club after school. I asked the Lord for wisdom in sharing with her and began to pray that he would show her the truth. On September 11th of my second teaching year, the Twin Towers were attacked. The decision was made to move our team out of the Middle East and to East Asia. While I was packing up my things at the university, Nilifar came to me and asked me again about Jesus. I shared with her once again, and I could see that she was struggling. I gave her a hug, and I told her to pray that God, the true God, would show her who Jesus is and lead her to the truth. I got on a plane to East Asia a few hours later. During the next 20 years living and serving in East Asia, I had never heard from Nilifar, but I prayed for her often. In January 2020, COVID forced us out of East Asia, and the Lord eventually led us back to the Middle East, where we are now serving. A couple of months ago, I attended a conference here. At the end of the day, I felt a tap on my shoulder. I turned around and saw a familiar face in front of me asking, Natalie, do you remember me? It was Nilifar. She said after I left her country 20 years ago, she prayed that the true God would show her the true way. That night, she had a dream where Jesus came to her and said, I am the truth. She received Christ and connected with other believers and eventually joined staff with our organization and is now serving the Lord here in this country. You believe in the power of God? Do you believe the prayers of his people help to accomplish his mission? Yeah, me too. Let's pray that God would do great works both here in Boulder and around the world. Lord Jesus, we bless you that you are a God who desires that all people would be saved and would come into a restored relationship of peace with God because of what you have accomplished on the cross. We thank you, Jesus, that you have called each of your followers into this mission that extends throughout the world. And I pray for my friends here in this room. I pray if anyone, any heart in this room has yet to receive you, Jesus, I pray they would receive the free offer of salvation through you today by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray for each of us who has called on your name for salvation, that you would remind us that we're called out into your mission, equipped with your power and sustained by prayer. And we pray, God, for an increasing number of people here in the city of Boulder to find salvation through Jesus. We pray in your powerful name. Amen.